Hi, James. Ben, how are you? Good. It has been a long time. I have to say our powering through streak definitely <laughs> fell flat on its face. So, uh, <laughs> alas. Yeah, I guess. It, yeah, I don't have anything for it. So as you mentioned, two weeks ago, I was on vacation and traveling. So I'm going to give us a pass then. Last week, I couldn't do it. <laughs> I had too much going on and it did not happen. And I did not power through. I failed. I believe you are the powering through champ. I am the loser. I hand you the crown and and salute you. I appreciate it. I must confess that, like, I mean, the obvious topic last week was going to be Apple. And really nothing about that excited me so much where I was like, oh, my God, we must get on the mic and start recording. It was just a bit. I did give you the option of powering through. I might. Look, if you really want to talk about the event, I'll figure out a way to make it work. And you're like, no, nah, not really. <laughs> Which, is, frankly, is probably the topic that we should have talked about is why are you not excited to talk about this topic? Yes. Well, that's probably true. But maybe that's a topic for another day because I think there's something else we should talk about today. I did write about Apple last week, so you can go check that out if you want my thoughts about the event on Shacheri. I have not yet written a weekly article this week. I did write a daily update yesterday about YouTube, and in passing, by the way, I also wrote about Mark Zuckerberg's op-ed about regulation and whatnot, and with some references to the European copyright issue, which I've also written about previously. We'll put links to all these in the show notes. I think today might touch on all of them. I actually am undecided. Let's see how this podcast goes. I might change it into a weekly article. Like it's one of those things where I want to write about it. I'm not sure if I fully fleshed it all out in my head, so maybe this will help. But that comes with the necessary caveat that if I decide to do this, then my article will come out before this podcast. So forgive us any sort of discrepancies or if I manage to change my mind. Yeah, all right. Let's see if we can convince you to write about it. So Bloomberg, with the necessary caveat that it's Bloomberg, which, you know, isn't that crazy? Like every time that we speak about Bloomberg, it's like those are the guys that accused Apple of there being Chinese chips in there and nobody's been able to prove anything about that. Yeah. And Amazon and lots and yeah, lots of other companies. And at this point, like you got to withdraw the story or it's pretty. Um, yeah. <laughs> like, it, it bothers me in a story like this, where a story like this is based on a lot of background reporting, a lot of anonymous sources. It's based on former employees that may or may not have access to grind. And frankly, there's a lot in this story about YouTube that we're going to get to in a moment that rings very true. And I'm sort of inclined to think that's the case. But in stories like this in particular, it's really hard to not forget the fact that this is written by Bloomberg and Bloomberg has a lot less credibility with me, particularly with anonymous sources than they did six months ago. Yeah, it's absolutely crazy. Like it was a reputable publication and now we're having to asterisk every time we link to it. But like you, I'm inclined to believe it. Thinking about it from an incentive point of view, it does feel like there's a ring of truth to it, right? Yes. What the story is, was the story about YouTube. And, you know, there have been stories about YouTube. We've talked about YouTube in the past. We will reference that sort of going forward. But this idea that the headline kind of says it all. YouTube executives ignored warnings, letting toxic videos run rampant. And basically this idea that there's been questions about YouTube, whether it be YouTube and conspiracy theories, for example, or YouTube and uh, in those conspiracy theories, you know, wide range would be like, you know, the earth is flat or, you know, the anti-vaccination movement or other things. Things like that. Obviously, this came to prominence with the horrible sort of massacre in Christchurch, New Zealand, where this idea that this person was radicalized in part through YouTube. There's also been other stories about child abuse type photos or like photos of young kids that using comment sections to sort of like create a trail and people following it around and just very disturbing stuff, to say the least. So that idea isn't new. We've been top of this for a while. I've written about it several times. But I think what was new in this article was sort of a pretty 
strong, and I don't say accusation or just suggestion that actually people at YouTube knew about this. They knew it was a problem and that leadership didn't care because leadership wanted more engagement and any sort of efforts to rein this in sort of died at the altar of engagement. And again, it's something that we have to be very careful with because this certainly sort of confirms our suspicions. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like the temptation for confirmation bias is extremely high with this story. Yeah. I mean, the parallel, it's funny given how extensively we've covered Facebook and relatively speaking, how little we've spoken about YouTube, but really the dynamics at play are very similar around this being user-generated content. Some of it professional, sure, but a lot of user-generated content and the basis for success is just trying to blanket the entire planet and therefore engagement being this thing that is like the prime objective of what the organization sets out to. I see it in Facebook and like in a lot of the issues that we've talked about in Facebook, you peel it back and it's growth and it's this desire to get engagement. It's the same thing here with YouTube. And that's why I'm inclined to, yes, confirmation bias totally, but I'm inclined to to feel like there's something here. Yeah. And I think if you think about it, like there's two real big reasons to believe that this would be the case. And I think they do apply to Facebook. We're going to focus on YouTube. But in this case, there's two reasons to understand this. So one, just from a sort of company basis that you would see this in sort of any company, like YouTube is and always has been an exceptionally sort of expensive product to run. Like we don't know how profitable it is. I've railed on this consistently every time Google does its earnings. I think it's wrong that they don't disclose YouTube separately. We have no idea what how much it costs, how much it's earning. It's just sort of lumped in with the rest of Google. You know, the fact that they sort of have a completely separate organization with a so-called CEO yet are getting away with not reporting it to me is problematic. But at the same time, you know, all suggestions we have is that it's still like really expensive. We know a couple of years ago when YouTube hit this billion hours of a day sort of mark that sort of figures prominently in this Bloomberg story that, you know, CEO Susan Wojcicki was doing interviews talking about they weren't focused on profitability. They were focused on growth, certainly strongly suggesting that it wasn't necessarily a super profitable unit. I think the only leak we've had, I think, was back in 2015. The Wall Street Journal reported that they had revenue at that time of around four billion, but was unprofitable or was at best sort of break even. Again, that was a long time ago. Things have changed. YouTube has been growing strongly. This you know very much could be a Steve Jobs saying that we're just trying to run the app store at cost. And now look at it today. It's actually the number one sort of driver of Apple's revenue growth. Again, so we don't know what it is in 2019. And this article, when a lot of these decisions are being made, it seems reasonable to assume that YouTube was extremely expensive, definitely growing in revenue, but was not profitable. And, you know, we're talking about a site that was purchased well over a decade ago and still not profitable. Like So inherent in that is some sort of motivation that we need to keep growing. We need to be sort of pushing this product. Yeah. And there's also, it's one of these things where you get an obvious benefit from being number one and you don't want anyone to come up behind you. Like we're going to talk about the recommendation engine and that's driven by AI, having the most data, having the most engagement, having people click and learning from that. And that's another one of these flywheels from growth that it's one of these things where like all signs point to growth being an imperative. And you can understand if you're inside the business, why you would treat it that way. Right. And that applies to the advertising side as well, right? We've talked about this in the context of aggregators. And frankly, we should talk about YouTube more because YouTube is just as much this sort of flywheel as sort of the other parts of Google and Facebook and all the other ones in that the more sort of viewers they have, the more engagement you have, the more you get advertisers on there, the 
more finely tart you can do, the more sort of fine-tuned audiences you can deliver. And that benefits from there being more, 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 more. In advertising, in particular on the internet, we talk about this again and again, there is nothing better than being the biggest. Like scale matters all the time, but sort of like the returns to scale. Again, YouTube's super expensive, so I'm going to say zero marginal costs with the context of one incremental user, one incremental advertiser. I'm not saying delivering video isn't expensive. It is. But this idea of every incremental user and advertiser basically coming on the platform at effectively zero cost, there is no limitation to the benefits of scale, right? If you're producing physical products, at some point, you get down the cost curve. You're just not getting down the cost curve any further, right? If you make 100 million iPhones, you make 500 million iPhones. Like, how much cheaper is it actually going to get you know, to sort of create an iPhone? But when it comes to advertising and these purely virtual business models, the returns to scale never stop. It never stops sort of increasing. Yeah. And and the dynamics we've talked about where advertisers have a limited amount of time and they just want to focus where most of the users are because otherwise the effort to put it on another network and then another network and then another network. And if you've got the place where people are just viewing things, it's like, okay, the billion hours a day that's being uploaded and all the associated viewing with that, it's like, we're going to reach a pretty big audience. We'll be able to spend our budget. And like you mentioned, target effectively from an advertiser perspective, that's great. Exactly. So we have that YouTube wants to grow just because like any company, they need, they want to get profitable or they want to increase engagement in an advertising business. They want to be profitable. We have, as you mentioned, I don't want to diminish this, like the increased data that comes from more engagement and like there's a return there where it actually gets better for users over time. We'll explore what better for users means, but it gets better for users over time. The more people use it, we have the increase when it comes to just the business model for advertising being bigger is better and being the leader is super important. And then I think we have a fourth context, which is just sort of video generally. Like there's a fundamental transformation going on in the way people spend their time. And I'm reminded of the last earnings call where Netflix said our biggest competitor is Fortnite. Like that was perhaps a shot at YouTube, but it's a competition for people's leisure time generally, for people's attention. And, you know, in this environment, what is the constraint? You think about what motivates these companies. What is the constraint in the value chain that they're competing with? When it comes to digital services, there's no constraint on the number of consumers you can serve. There's no constraint on the amount of content you can have. There's no constraint in the number of advertisers you can have. There's no constraints anywhere. There's only one constraint, which is there's 24 hours in a day and there's 7 billion people on earth. And that's a lot, but it's still, there's an upper limit, right? There's a bound there, which means in this environment to drive, to learn, to capture more and more of that from a business perspective, engagement is a brilliant goal. That hundred billion hours a day goal the simplicity of it was brilliant. You can see how it worked because it wraps together all these motivations into one clear KPI that if we deliver on this, we're going to get all these other benefits. And that KPI is expressly focused on the one constraint in this environment. Yeah, it sounds phenomenal. And I certainly get it from an organizational alignment perspective. Like you have this North Star that everybody knows what they're driving towards. But man, me in particular, I feel like I've railed against it from the respect of privacy, from the impact it has on society and I mean, all the different things that you've heard me and we've talked about on Facebook. And it's like kind of the same thing here with YouTube, right? Like you have all the benefits of that one audacious goal and it certainly focuses people, but it doesn't easily allow for people to take account of the drawbacks of that goal and the problems with that goal and correct for them. I think, though, at the end of the day, all what you said is correct, and we're going to get into all that. But if I can break out my favorite phrase, you know, there but for the grace of God go I, that makes you uncomfortable. If you go back and 
think about, oh, I'm running this big business. We have all these different things we need to accomplish. And how can we align the organization generally? How can we accomplish all our goals? And if you're sitting in sort of like a business school class or something, like how can you think about aligning incentives? And you're able to come up with like one single metric that actually managed to capture almost everything. It's hard to not like sort of pat yourself on the back. Yeah, well, it's not just irresistible, but you can see how you could embrace this goal and not even think about what potential downsides there might be, particularly in the context of no one was thinking about these downsides. We've talked about this, that everyone gets on their high horse and criticizes like Facebook in particular, when there were articles cheering the exact same sort of behavior when they were announced, you know, five, seven, eight, 10 years ago. Again, we're going to get into a lot of the problems here and why having these sort of principles are important. And maybe this is useful for you because I think to your immense credit, and I'll say this, you know, every podcast or every episode until we finish, like your sense around Facebook, your gut sense around it turned out to be, I think, very sort of accurate. And you really grokked something that was problematic here, right? But you know, when it comes to YouTube, did you have that same sort of sense? Because you can think about, oh, if you're just looking at it from a sort of objective perspective, you could see yourself sort of making similar mistakes and thinking that you were doing a fantastic job. Yeah, I think you absolutely can. Regarding me and YouTube, probably not. I didn't. And it was in part because I never really was much of a user. I think one of the big distinctions between- And by the way, I'm not saying that to criticize you. No, 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 no. My only point is, I think with Facebook, we've had the discussion where I've argued that their decisions deserve maybe a little more empathy because probably a lot of us would have made the exact same decisions. And you were always like, well, no, I wouldn't have because I kind of had this sense. And I have to grant that to you. And so I grant that to you and say, but look over here, (laughs) like maybe we should have a little bit of empathy for the decisions that they made. Totally. And I didn't take it personally. I think it's a really good point. I would say I didn't have the same sense for YouTube and in part because I wasn't a user, but I think it's also in part because one of the things that distinguishes Facebook from YouTube is YouTube hasn't had this privacy related angle where they collected data on users and it got out in ways that felt like they were using users' data or exploiting user privacy in order to drive growth. I would say to Google's credit that they have managed to stay on the other side of that line. They will walk up very close to it. They've done a much better job of that than Facebook. And I think part of me coming to become aware of the Facebook thing was the privacy angle, YouTube less so. Yeah, I think that's super interesting, right? Because I think the one thing that stands out in my mind as far as Google really sort of screwing up as far as privacy was the Google Buzz thing, where they were sort of like exposing contacts or things like that within your email, trying to like basically build a social network on top of Gmail. And it was a really, really bad screw up. But it feels like that was like the one, right? I think there's some aspect where Google's data on you is probably much deeper and even more than Facebook, right? The reality is that their collection is not just as deep. It's been going on longer. You probably tell Google more through your searches or your browsing or whatever it is than you do Facebook. Google is on more sites. It's spread over the web more because they have a much stronger sort of third-party ad network. They have Google Analytics on, on every website. Like Google's knowledge about you, I would wager, is even Google more. Google Maps on every deeper. phone. Oh yeah, of course. They know where you're going. It's nuts. Like it really is, but they have really done a much better job of feeling like they preserve privacy than Facebook. 
Right. The question is, is that because they're better at it or is it because that sort of the nature of their services? Like, is this like a principal thing or is it a strategy credit thing? You know what I mean? Whereas with Google, the way to monetize and the way to grow. Again, we've talked about this. Google succeeded because they were the best. Right. And they were in an environment, the open web that really rewarded them for being better. And also it rewarded them for data collection, frankly. Right. Their results were better because they got more data, but they exposed that data, not by exposing the data, but by providing the solution that you wanted to be better. Right. Google is a example of how giving a company more data, there are definite benefits to it, right? Whereas Facebook was this sort of conveyor of data where you put in data. And from the day one, the whole point of Facebook was to expose your data to other people, right? If you think about it, what is the idea of the Facebook? They can go online and you can view someone's picture and see what they're doing, right? The whole point was to expose user data and they had to figure out where to draw the lines and what to expose, what not to expose and those sorts of things. And obviously they've screwed up royally lots and lots of times. We've talked about a million times. We don't need to make this about Facebook again, but it feels like that Google in some respects, despite the fact they're doing almost everything Facebook is just by virtue of what their products and what they are and what they do, they've been able to escape a lot of these sort of problems. Yeah, I think that is absolutely the case. Because if you think about your, your issues with Facebook, you've talked about the like the search things, like searching for people with various characteristics that would show up in search. Like that's in part because Facebook is a people site. It's about people. Like what is else search going to do other than expose people? Whereas Google hasn't been that. They, they tried to be that. And you think about that. You go back to Buzz. What was the problem with Buzz? And they screwed up privacy so badly because they tried to get into the people business. And that was sort of the root of the problem, not just the decisions they made around Google Buzz, but it was almost the motivation that they had to get into that space that led them astray. So the question becomes is like anytime you get into the people business, like you're going to run into these problems more often. I think that is potentially a reasonable hypothesis. I will say though, to go back to the earlier question, like you've got this metrics and the distinction between YouTube and Facebook, like your question, would I have picked it up at YouTube? I might not have picked it up initially, but that Bloomberg article If you're working there or if you're a user there, things start to appear to you where, okay, something's going on here. And the way in which YouTube reacted is kind of the thing that starts to get my hackles up because it's one thing to put this North Star up there and have that one objective function, but you need like a stop the bus like kind of cord which you can pull is like something's going wrong here and yeah we can have this objective function but we need to be able to stop it in instances where it's not working well and when you hear of behavior reported where it's like okay lawyers telling people not to raise concerns verbally because once they start down this path they have a liability that's where it's like okay you've got this fantastic north star but there are unintended consequences and you're not dealing with them in fact you're doubling down on it that's where I start to get a bit less sympathetic. Yeah, I think went on a bit of a diversion there, but I think it's a useful one because I think the point you're sort of feeling your way around, it sort of just came to me when you were talking, where you got that bad sense was the way it sort of was exposing data. And here in this case, YouTube isn't exposing user data. Like this isn't really a question of privacy. In fact, if you think about it, it's kind of the opposite. It's that the fundamental thing at issue here, the fundamental problem is that YouTube is giving people exactly what they want. You know what I mean? Like if you think about what are at the root of these algorithms is that YouTube is sort of trying to understand what you're looking for and trying to give you more of it in a way that you just keep watching, you keep watching, you keep looking at the next thing because it's what you want to see. 
you are spot on in terms of what initially got me worried about Facebook. But the thing that got me equally concerned later on was the way in which the newsfeed focused on engagement and all the behavior that resulted. And the best way to get engagement is on some level drive to the lowest common denominator. There are certain feelings that will drive engagement, anger, outrage, all that kind of stuff. And Facebook was guilty of it. Like they were guilty of it to drive towards growth and YouTube, it seems to have played the exact same card. It will play the exact same strategy. It's like, okay, we're going to go for growth. We're going to go for this billion hours a day, but yes, we're going to do it in a way in which we've created an addictive product. And it's addictive in the same way I think of tobacco or sugar, but for the mind, yeah, you're giving people what they want. Like if you step back and think about, is this really what we should be doing? Are we doing good here? And people started to ask questions and they were told not to. That's where it starts to become objectionable for me. Yeah, that's exactly right. I think it's useful to sort of step back and think about what's at issue here and what is it about this article in particular that I think is sort of damning. You think about the content problem, let's say, where there's lots of content out there. Probably the vast majority of it is fine or even downright good. And there's definitely all sorts of stuff on YouTube that was never available previously that is tremendously beneficial. I mean, you can like let's not understate what a resource YouTube really, really is. And that's you know more focused on sort of utility, the educational aspect. But there's a lot of fun stuff on YouTube. Too. I mean, like at the end of the day, I'm not going to be here some sort of Puritan saying, oh, you shouldn't be able to just waste time on the boob tube and watch whatever you want. No, that's fine. Like people want to relax. They want to watch whatever it might be. And that's fine. I have no sort of problem with that. I'm not going to get here moralistic about rotting the kids' brains by watching TV. We like we've been through this debate. We just cycle through it as a society again and again and again. You know, it's TV, whether it's video games, whether I'm sure there was debates about people listening to the radio and that was rotting people's minds. Like this isn't the issue here. The issue is that if you're getting all content, there's there's some category that's not great content, right? And there's obviously illegal stuff. There's things, you know, promoting terrorism or then there's stuff that's sort of more on the line that's pushing, like we mentioned, sort of the conspiracy theories. And some of these conspiracy theories, like, yeah, if someone wants to believe that the earth is flat, they're a moron. You get to something like, say, the anti-vaccination stuff, right? And that causes autism. And and that actually becomes a societal problem because vaccinations work when lots of people have it. And there's some people that can't be vaccinated and they depend on sort of herd immunity, I believe is the term. And so now you're getting into much more things. And then you get into even far more sinister things that is inspiring. Again, people are responsible for their own actions, but they're being radicalized. They're being driven to atrocities like the ones that we've witnessed. There's this article I wrote in the first year's tech career. I think it's something we've mentioned it many times in the podcast. I've mentioned it in writing. I mentioned it this week in the daily updates. If I do write this weekly article, I'm sure I'll mention it again. But it was called friction. The key thing about the internet, like at the very, very basis of all this stuff, of aggregation theory, of everything, everything we write about, of all these companies, is this removal of friction. But in the context of aggregation theory, it used to be the case that controlling distribution, like we talked about newspapers, like controlling trucks and controlling printing presses, was the source of their sort of competitive advantage, right? That was a lot of friction, right? It's a lot of friction to actually create those PDFs and to actually go out and print them and actually load them up onto a truck and actually put them in a newsstand, actually walk up and pull a quarter out of your pocket or whatever, you know, much more expensive now, but I'm an old man and actually open up the grab a newspaper, right? Just friction all the way up and down that sort of process and compare that to typing in a URL or clicking on a link. There's no friction. Friction is gone. And we've seen how that's completely upended sort of industry after industry, value chain for value chain, business model for business model. And if many respects, that's what Shachekri is about. Shachekri is about exploring the implications of the end of friction. But what 
I wrote about in that article is I mentioned a few business models. I think I mentioned like the app store and mentioned a couple other things, but this absence of friction is a, it's an amoral event, right? It's something that happened and the implications of what that means are not obviously going to be good. Like it's something that happened. There's nothing inherently good about it or inherently bad about it. What actually happens is now sort of up to us to deal with, to figure out. And Oh, by the way, I connected it sort of back to the industrial revolution, which, you know, I've said that I believe the internet sort of, long-term impact, historical impact is of a similar scale. Like the industrial revolution, yeah, it led to a dramatic decrease in lifting people out of poverty and huge increase in sort of wealth generally in in a very sort of positive sense in in major advancements. It also made us really freaking good at killing each other and the bloodiness of wars and all the sorts of things that, you know, the periods after that, yes, humans have been fighting forever. We just got suddenly got really, really good at it. You know what I mean? It's all part of the same thing. There's pluses and there's minuses. And my concern in that article was we're here looking at all the upsides of this lack of friction, but boy, we better be pretty careful because there's going to be a lot of downsides and we don't even know what a lot of them are yet. Yeah. And one of the unexpected ones was like, you start watching some crackpot on YouTube talking about how vaccinating your kids is going to give them autism. And all of a sudden you've gone down the rabbit hole into this entirely new reality. And it's not just like there's a video related to it. There's this incredible machine working in the background to figure out the thing that is going to keep you watching this for as long as possible. So it's not just any old video related to it. It is the video that is most likely to appeal to you and to keep you glued to the set. And then when that one's done, they'll find the next one and then the next one and then the next one. Yeah. I think this this sort of like squares the circle between this idea of sort of like personal responsibility. At the end of the day, like humans are responsible for their actions. Like people do bad things, but it's easy to lose sight of the fact that friction stopped a lot of people from doing bad things. And friction sort of stopped your worst impulses from becoming sort of an ideology and something that you acted upon. This really cuts, I think, very close to home for someone like me because Mark Andreessen has talked about this. He grew up in a small town in Wisconsin and he's talked about the fact, you know, he was like stuck in this little town and it was the internet that sort of like kept him sane or like, I guess that was pre-internet. Maybe it's Mark Andreessen, but like bulletin boards and being able to get online and be able to learn information. This is pre-World Wide Web. And he's talked a lot about this why one reason that he is a technological optimist is because it's very easy to take a sort of a quote unquote coastal elite view of this, where you grew up and your life was already pretty good and you already had access to a lot of opportunities and you see the internet come on and say, yeah, I can see how that made things a little better, but it made a lot of things worse too. If you're someone that is coming from the middle of nowhere and that's your way out, whereas you would have been stuck as sort of an outcast and a miscast in the middle of nowhere forever, that's something that has driven his sort of optimism. And it's something I can relate to very, very strongly. I grew up in a small town. I grew up with a family that was not technically inclined at all, that was not business inclined. I was raised in sort of a a hardcore sort of Christian sort of environment where I was expected to grow up and be like a pastor or a minister or something along those lines. And for me, the internet and the ability to sort of learn about the world out there and then to really, from a physical perspective, you know, traveling abroad in that process, learning about myself, but that traveling abroad being made possible and much easier because I could still have connections back to home and I could have connections back to technology and, you know, all that time where I was traveling abroad and trying to like, quote unquote, find myself, which I was absolutely doing. I was also reading about tech and thinking about tech the whole time. Right. And people ask me, oh, you know, when you write up a trajectory, how do you know all this stuff? It's like, well, I was reading and obsessing about this for literally years and years before I ever started this. And I was able to do that while simultaneously finding myself because of the internet. Right. And not just that, but the internet 
it also is obviously the core of my business is what makes it successful. I can live in Taiwan now and, and reach you. You're sitting in San Francisco and I can reach people all over the world and I can accept payments and all like it's amazing. And no one has been from the internet more than me. I'm super cognizant of that. At the same time, there were benefits that came from not being able to get information that came from not being able to connect with like-minded people that they're like societal benefits. Yeah. It stinks if you feel isolated and alone, but if you're sort of way out of feeling isolated and alone is to demonize another group of people. And then to sort of do a terrorist attack because to like to hold up the good, because you've been radicalized because you've been so been able to so trivially discover people saying this and so trivially discover a community of people that think like this, you know, like that's the exact same dynamic that I'm talking about that benefited me so tremendously that benefits them like Mark Andreessen so tremendously. It's the exact same thing. I read a description of this once, like you'd have people that believe in these crazy things. And once upon a time, they would stand on a street corner and they would be handing out pamphlets and most people would walk past them and like, dude, you're crazy. Like this stuff isn't okay. But you suddenly enable them to connect wherever they are. And all of a sudden you have a community and like it has all the other benefits of a community. Like they- You get all those feedback loops, the exact feedback loops we're talking about. Right. And as a result of that, like you see some of the 4chan and 8chan forums creating these memes and battle testing them inside. And then by the time they pop out, they are that much more alluring to minds that otherwise it wouldn't have gotten that good. But it's like because of the addictiveness, because of the fact it's been battle tested and gone through these feedback loops, it's able to reach people that it otherwise previously wouldn't have been able to. So yes, I'm with you on the positive. And I have experienced many of the same things, but the negatives, and this is something that probably because we haven't looked for those communities, we don't see them, but they're starting to get more and more powerful. And this is one of the vectors along which they're doing it. You had the handle on the Facebook privacy thing, and maybe this is the thing that I sort of had the handle on, because this idea I wrote in this piece, the lack of friction makes everything easier. It makes both the good things easier and it makes the bad things easier. And frankly, the unimaginably terrible things. And I wrote, in our zeal to reduce friction and our eagerness to celebrate the good, we ought not lose sight of the potential bad. And it's almost like the herd humanity thing all over again. If you're the one person that is inclined towards these sort of problem, again, it's not to absolve anyone of personal responsibility, right? You had inclination in a certain direction for whatever reasons. But if you're one person in the city or there's like three or four of you, at the end of the day, it's like you against everyone else. It's very isolating, right? And you think about it on a percentage basis, right? Let's say that, you know, point. 2% of a city has these views and they may find each other, but at the end of the day, they're very cognizant all the time that it's 99.8 against 0.2. You know what I mean? Like it's very present. Like you are the minority. We do not agree with this. This is frowned upon. This is not what people think. You are wrong. It's hard to sort of overcome that. On the internet, you can have the exact same percentage. It can still be 99.8 versus 0.2. The difference is when you're operating at the scale of billions of people, that 0.2 is a lot larger. It feels like it's a lot larger. And not just that, but you can immerse yourself that you're not even hearing the other people. You're just in your entire world where everyone around you and everyone you talk to believes the same thing you are. And you believe that that's the case. And why is that possible? Because the internet removed the friction of location of geography of having to be in the same physical location. 
Do you know what it reminds me of? It reminds me of a conversation we probably had 12, 18 months ago around software distribution in the Windows era. And it's like the Mac just didn't stand a chance because you'd walk into a store and the store would obviously be incented to only carry the software that people would buy off the shelf for the most people that lived in that geographic area. And and more and more, it became difficult to source that software and find that software, whereas Windows got further and further out in front. And once you created a distribution system over the internet, once you removed physical distribution, the notion of even market share started to become irrelevant because the absolute numbers were so great that that's ultimately what developers cared about. And it's like, that's true for software, but it's also almost true for ideas as well. Like previously you were stuck in this physical distribution. You were effectively the Mac user trying to buy software at the game store in your local town. And like, people would look at you funny because like, why would I carry that? Like nobody here does that. And now you're distributing over the internet and it's completely changed the game. Percentages don't matter anymore. You're right. It probably is 0.2%, but percentages don't matter. It becomes a much more absolute number. So we're going to title this episode, Why Mac Users Are Terrorists. (laughs) (laughs) But no, I think think it's a great analogy. And, And what I like about that analogy is it really captures the fact that these are all the same things, right? It's the exact same dynamics. And it gets at the point that these changes in technology and what's going forward, again, to my point, they're amoral. They don't lean right. They don't lean wrong. They're just facts. And what happens after that is what is important. The last time we did talk about YouTube was two and a half years ago when I wrote this piece that I think is, has held up pretty well. It's called the Pollyannish Assumption. And the Pollyannish Assumption was this idea that the executives of these companies, and they're always talking about YouTube specifically, they're so sort of inculcated in the we're changing the world and sort of the inherent rightness of what they do. We've certainly talked in the context of Facebook as well, this sort of messianic sort of complex and this assumption that people are inherently good and that if we just let people do more what they want, that's going to be a good thing. And a lack of doubt and a lack of uncertainty and a lack of negativity, you know, which is not fun. It's not fun to be the guy thinking about the unintended consequences. But just because you don't want to think about the unintended consequences, you don't want to be negative, doesn't mean those unintended consequences don't exist. And if you ignore them, they will come back and sort of bite you in the rear end. And in that case, you fuse this sort of amoral fact of a reduction in friction with a leadership of these companies that presumed that actually it was morally good. There was like a moral mismatch. Like they were operating as if anything we do with the internet is inherently good. When the reality, anything we do with the internet is not inherently good or bad. It's what happens after that, that actually matters. And that's the sort of mismatch that is at issue here. It provides the perfect Petri dish for this kind of stuff to grow And the problem is dealing with it at this scale versus dealing with it at the scale when they started out is like orders of magnitude more difficult. Yeah. And so in that, the Pollyannish assumption, one of my pushbacks there on Google and YouTube, because like, so sorry, I I kind of started this before, but what's the problem that YouTube faces? Like there is a real scale problem here. Again, there are benefits to YouTube. There are benefits, and I'm not diminishing that at all, the tremendous knowledge that comes up and all that. So let's take that as a given that YouTube, we even grant that by and large, the vast majority of YouTube is good for the world. 
So we'll just use that to start out with. The issue is we're talking about hundreds of millions of hours of video uploaded like every Billions. minute or something like that. Yeah. Yeah. No, I decreased the units a minute, but it's some crazy, ridiculous number. And when I wrote this two and a half years ago, I calculated that they would need like 100,000 people watching video like 40 hours a week without any break or any reporting, whatever, to sort of keep up. And that was still growing. But it was some sort of almost nearly unimaginable number. And so that's issue number one is there's just a huge amount of sale here. And as I know at the time, like that is a legitimate sort of issue. Like it's not wrong for YouTube to say, look, there's a lot of video. We're doing our best, you know. And one thing that YouTube has done in that internet properties have sort of always done is sort of rely on user reporting of like problematic videos. And as I know at the time, that sounds so lame. Oh, you're gonna have user report, do your work for you. But actually it's quite brilliant because what it's doing is there's even more users than there are sort of uploaders, right? So it's leveraging the internet. It's leveraging the scale that you have to basically deputize your users to help you manage this almost unmanageable problem. At a core principle, I have no problem with sort of the reporting thing. The only problem being when you're relying not just on people, but people's judgments. And whereas 99.8% of people might think this video is wrong, the 0.2% that are watching it think it's fantastic. They're not going to report it, right? Well, that's the issue is that all the people that would rightly judge videos as being problematic, they're not watching those videos, right? They're not seeking them out. And the more that YouTube gets better at recommending things, like if you're watching videos about science, it's not going to start recommending a flat earth video, right? Like, yeah, yeah. Just check this out for us. Is this okay? Right. It's like, oh, by the way, we want to keep you on site. You're finding this tremendously useful. We're going to stick this ridiculous thing in you so that you can report it to us, right? The problem is that on a theoretical level, the idea of deputizing users is actually a more valuable one than it appears. It's like a sample size problem, right? Like people will always say on the internet, oh, it has 20,000 responses. That must be true. Well, no. What matters if you're running a sample or running a survey is- It's bias. You've biased it. Yeah. Right. If I publish a survey on searchhackery.com that says, you know, is strategy important? Maybe a lot of people say it's not important, which is probably closer to the truth. But we're, I'm trying to think of, a, of an appropriate question. If I'm, we, get, we get it. <laughs> if I post a tweet from my uh, sports account that says, are the Bucks the best team in basketball? Guess what? It's going to win because I'm in Bucks Twitter. I'm talking about a basketball team, James, in case you're not clear. Like people think the same way I do. People that are exposed to are going to see it, right? Even if I got 50,000 responses, that is not a statistically valid sample. What you need to do is it has to be purely randomized, right? Because why? You need to make sure you're capturing the people that are of all types. And what's interesting is people don't really know this about surveys. A well-formed like 400-person poll or survey, you can rely on it, you know, to a degree, understanding the limitations of it, but it's actually something that's a million times more valid than one with a million responses, but it's not sort of like a valid sample, if that makes sense. I'm going to pull you out of the quantitative methods course back to YouTube. Oh, right, sorry. So the point here, <laughs> the point here is that YouTube was doing the latter. They were doing the, oh, we have lots of people looking at this, but it wasn't a statistically valid sample in a way, just because the people that would report the bad videos weren't seeing the bad videos. And by design. Yes, by design. So sorry. Thank you for pulling me out. But so that's number one. So what I said in that article, the polyamorous assumption is, guess what else that YouTube is really good at? And guess what Google is really good at? They're really good at search. And if you search for something, they're really good at sort of recommending. It's like what was missing in my estimation from YouTube was they had a lack of willingness to leverage their tools. And so you'd get these reports. In that case, I was writing about one in BuzzFeed about these child exploitation videos where they're like, it's so easy to find it. And well, yes, it's easy to find it because Google and YouTube are good at their jobs. If you 
start out with the right place in the right seed and ask the right questions, it will perfectly deliver exactly what you wanted to because they've literally been spending decades figuring out how to do that. And the problem that I wrote about there is YouTube was not doing that. They were relying on this statistically invalid broad sampling approach instead of hiring people, putting themselves in the minds of, okay, if you were someone that was messed up in the head and you're looking for child exploitation videos, where would you start and where would you go? And I got the impression at the time there was no one at YouTube doing that. And why? Because if you did that, you would find all these videos very, very quickly because that's exactly what people did. And interesting, this article that basically confirmed that's exactly what went down. So it does beg the question. I mean, I said before, like you've got this objective function, but you'd expect people to start to see the problem and deal with it. Like I'm trying to put myself in the shoes of these folks and assume that they're good people. And were they worried about liability? Like once you start moderating and if you don't do the job extensively, you become liable for everything that you failed to moderate Like, is there some other explanation for why they didn't do something about this? Yeah, I mean, it's weird because you mentioned this before that lawyers verbally suggested people not do this because they were worried about liability, which doesn't make any sense, frankly. And I think you're referring to there's Section 230 of the Communications Act, which is kind of widely misunderstood. And you hate to think that it was misunderstood by YouTube's lawyers, but I actually need to do a bit of a historical dive on this because I think it is important and frankly makes me confused about this specific part in this Bloomberg article where they said that the lawyers sort of verbally advised them to be careful of Google's legal standing. So way back in the day, there was this case called Cub versus CompuServe. And Cubby sued CompuServe for, for defamation based on comments in a forum. And a judge ruled that CompuServe was not liable because they were a mere distributor of the content. They were not a publisher. And so, you know, everything seemed great. But then a new decision came down four years later, which was called uh, Stratton Oakmont versus Prodigy. Uh, Stratton Oakmont is actually the investing firm memorialized in The Wolf on Wall Street. But they sued Prodigy for the exact same thing. And Prodigy brought up the, the CompuServe defense, which is like, we're just a distributor, not a publisher. And what happened was, they ruled that because Prodigy was moderating their forums, they had moderators doing it. And the ruling was, well, it's exactly what people think that 230 is, right? Where if you are moderating at all, then that means you've committed to moderate everything, which means you are now liable for everything on there. It was kind of a perverse sort of ruling when you think about the incentives of these sites, because it meant that the only way to be legally safe was to do zero moderation. That was the point of Section 230 was to fix this problem. Basically, what it said was you will not be liable for third party content, even if you moderate. And it's called the Good Samaritan provision, which means that no provider, I'm going to actually read from the statute, no provider or user of interactive computer service shall be held liable on account of any action voluntarily taken in good faith to restrict access to or availability of material that the provider or user considers to be obscene, legal issue, blah, 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 so on and so forth. And that was specifically put in there because of that prodigy case, which is, you know, we're trying to clean up our forms. We're trying to prevent bad things on here. If we have to sort of find everything or else we're going to be liable, then the answer is either one, to have zero user-generated content, which would be a very sort of different internet than we have today. And not just like Facebook and YouTube, but things like blogging platforms, for example, right? Like everything about the internet would be, it would be terrible. You basically have, I mean, frankly, it's kind of what Europe's pushing for. This yeah, sort of like, I was about you know, to like, say. <laughs> like Europe is, the reason why the copyright directive that you may have heard about is so problematic is it's holding platforms responsible for any copyright violation on their platform. And it was like, oh, that means you have to have upload filters, which is like going to be a big problem. Like, and so they put there, we're not requiring that you have upload filters, but the actual way that this will work, if you're liable for everything, that means you either don't have anything 
everything or you filter everything and you go overboard because you don't want to screw it up because the fines are substantial. And so the point of 230 was to avoid the situation. And I don't understand why 230 gets a bad rap here. I mean, this idea of, again, if you're going to hold a platform liable for everything that's published on it, you're literally destroying the internet, right? Not just the bad things, but all those good things. Like, guess what? Stratechery, I don't own the hardware that Shashekri is running on. I'm renting that. It's running on something. Are they going to now be liable for what I post on Shashekri? Well, what are they going to do? They're going to either kick me off or I'm going to be severely limited. Like the implications of not having this section 230 are massive, massive, massive. And so in this case, for Google's lawyers to say, oh, you shouldn't look for these bad things because increase your liability. I'm very confused by it, frankly. Okay, so it doesn't seem like there's a liability aspect to why they didn't act. So is this just like, let the thing... Let- I don't know. I mean, I, I don't know. It feels there were other priorities, you know? I mean, and this is where I kind of moved from the, you know, you start out that YouTube has a problem just because of volume, and it's an understandable problem. And then you get to part two where the point of the polyamorous assumption was, okay, I appreciate this is a problem, but you're not doing everything you can to find this bad stuff. And I framed that a day update, like that's a sin of omission right? It's something that you're not doing that you should be doing. What was damning about this article, and sorry, this has been a very, I promise we're going to get to what was damning about this article about 40 minutes ago. It's been a very circuitous route. But what was damning about this article is it's alleging a sin of commission, which is this drive for engagement. And this is something that Google's bragged about a lot. Like there's been a lot of talk on earnings calls about how, you know, because they want to frame it that we're like this AI company and look how AI is helping us in all these areas. And one of the big ones has always been YouTube, how YouTube, you know, really finds what users want to watch next. And the implication of that is they're watching more and they're going deeper and deeper into whatever they're engaged with. It follows then that YouTube is making the problem worse. It's not simply that it's on YouTube. It's not simply the fact that YouTube isn't doing everything they can to find it. It's that the implication that YouTube is actually actively pushing it. And to me, that was what really sort of hit home for me about this. And I know this isn't a new sort of idea, but I think this sort of gradation of responsibility is something that I think, at least for me anyway, was what really landed about this piece. The logical place to go here is like, what gets done about this now? I think we're starting to get to the point of widespread recognition that this is an issue. And it's starting to feel like, you know, People want something done. And I like, I feel like there are two ways of approaching it. And I think a good use of the time on the rest of this podcast is talking about it. Like one is going the government regulation route. The other is like the company decides to go and do something about it itself. Yeah, I think the government regulation route, I mean, not just because, you know, we're generally skeptical or me perhaps in particular of regulation, it's really problematic in this case, particularly in the United States, because of free speech. And that's not, I'm not saying free speech is problematic. What I mean is we are dealing with these ideas that are not illegal. The government cannot create a law targeting them. There was this case in the late 90s called REV versus St. Paul, where there was a cross burning on someone's yard, abhorrent hack, truly abhorrent hack. But the law under which the defendant was found guilty was ruled unconstitutional. And the reason was it explicitly prohibited actions that were basically that that were political messages. And it was specifically focused on things like gender and race along those lines. Basically, the Supreme Court was if you make a law, like we're not saying cross burning is legal, you can make a law that burning stuff 
is illegal or you're going to have a, you know, certainly fighting words has never been under the constitution, but that's been very sort of limited. It has to be content neutral, basically. Like if you make a law about political speech, it has to be content neutral. You can have a law that would make that illegal. There's this great line that ends the opinion was written by uh, Anton Scalia that says, quote, let there be no mistake about our belief that burning a cross in someone's front yard is reprehensible. But St. Paul has sufficient means at its disposal to prevent such behavior without adding the First Amendment to the fire, which uh, is. Oh, <laughs> wow. That's quite the line. Quite the turn of phrase. But that was the idea is that like there's ways to stop this without making rulings on political speech, basically, no matter how reprehensible that political speech is. Now, you can agree or disagree with that case. That It's a fairly sort of divisive case for obvious reasons. But the long and short of it is that's what it is in the United States. So the reason this matters here is it's not going to work to make laws against specific types of videos or regulation videos. And this is one of the things that, you know, was so sort of off about Mark Zuckerberg's sort of piece about regulation. Like the government should start saying like, oh, what should be regulated? Like that's not going to happen, right? You can say it should happen, but the fact of the matter is under First Amendment law in the United States, that is not going to happen in the United States, period. Again, this isn't a moral judgment, whether it should or should not happen. It's just a reflection of what is or is not going to happen. So let's just stick with the hammer of government regulation for a second. I I don't think too many folks would object to this notion that when the government finds a video that's terrorist related or something like that, and they reach out to the platforms and they say, shut this down, that the platforms should shut down specific instances of that video. I, I don't think that's an issue at all. But like this notion of content neutrality and thinking about the algorithmic problem and the filter bubbles and everything that's happened that we've talked about with Facebook, but also in this specific instance of YouTube, the place where my mind went when we started talking about this was like, what happens if you banned algorithmic recommendations or prioritization of results as it's starting to be called in policy circles for all user-generated content? Just to this very narrow point, that would be constitutional. It would because it's content neutral, right? You were just banning this entire practice. We're not telling you what items to ban. We're saying you just can't do it at all. So, yeah, I think that's the exact risk is there's lots of quite like, does this apply to Netflix? Well, it's only user your contract. Does this apply to, you know, where does this apply or not apply is problematic. But you're right. If we ever get to the regulation stage, that's probably what it is. I think this leads into, should we think about this from a government perspective or should these companies be thinking about it? I think that is the argument that's strongest for why these companies like YouTube, Facebook should be thinking about it because to continue down this path is to flirt with that being the outcome. And I mean, it's interesting because there were strategies that were suggested in the article and it sounds like some of them have been implemented to lessen the impact of this. And you've talked about search and like they have skills around search search and like, okay, they start searching down these vectors where these things are problematic, clearly problematic. And then you stop the recommendations. You don't have to take the video down. You can leave the video up, but you don't need to create rabbit holes around these topics. Like that would be an approach, for example, that would start to lessen some of these problems. Yeah. You know what it makes me think of? uh, Speaking of the Apple event, you know, one of the surprising things was that the Wall Street Journal decided to take part, despite the fact they've always been sort of the strongest as far as having a paywall. And they were the first to paywall and very sort of prescient as far as that goes. Why would they jump on Apple News and seemingly give up 
that direct connection with the customer. And well, it turns out that it's technically on Apple News, but if you want to get every article in the paper, you have to actually search for every single article on the paper. Like only a limited number will be surfaced. And that limited number to be surfaced is under the control of the journal. It's probably gonna be more general interest news stories, not like the business and financial stuff is why you actually subscribe. And what's so interesting about this is I think it's quite brilliant, actually, because they're gaining a bit of incremental revenue on these general interest stories. They're perhaps getting their name in front of more people and will get future subscribers. But despite the fact everything's there, there's a ton of friction to get everything. You see what what they did is they're using friction to their advantage, actually going and searching for every single journal article. Like you're not going to read the paper that way. You know what I mean? Whereas if it was on there without that limitation where you could just go there then why am I paying $40 a month or whatever? I could just pay Apple News and go and read everything there. And it's imposing friction in a way to sort of limit their own cannibalization or sort of reach. And I think what you just said is the same sort of thing, right? The thing for these videos, and yes, maybe a lot of them may be taken down, but some of them are more on the edge, is that should be the end of the rabbit hole. Like they don't recommend other videos and they're not recommended by other videos. If you want to find something specific, you can search for it. But again, that's a very different sort of mindset. I mean, just take a completely different example. There's research from behavioral economists about how do you get people to save more for retirement? And what you do is you change the defaults on their paycheck where it's set by default. You put things into retirement and you have to go in and actively undo it versus you don't do anything and you have to actively save more. Even though the choice is exact same, the outcomes are totally different because of the question of which choice requires more friction. Right. So the Bloomberg article, and my understanding is YouTube's already started down this path where they have this, it's not just it's in the potential rabbit hole with a recommendation or it's taken down. There are now videos where it's the case that there's this third place where the video, the content gets to live, but without the editorial of the recommendation and the algorithm working on it. But I feel like that there's an opportunity to, in the same way that they had this metric for engagement, rather than it being on on a case-by-case basis where, oh, this is this video is objectionable, let's turn it off. Like start to look for categories and use the AI in that way where it's like, okay, this stuff is problematic. We're going to use the AI to take this out of the recommendation engine altogether. It's almost trying to use that same scalable mindset to solve the problem as opposed to it still feels like the way it's being done is on a case-by-case basis. Well, I'm not, I'm not sure. There does seem to be an algorithmic component, right? There's some sort of, I think they're called a response responsibility score. And they're doing this thing where they insert like links to Wikipedia around like stuff that's clearly wrong. I feel like they kind of want to have their cake and eat it too, right? Like if they're able to find stuff that requires the insert of a link that will disprove it. And yeah, I'm sure people are really clicking on those links and being saved. I mean, like there needs to be a change in mindset is what I think. It feels like YouTube is still operating under the, this is a good thing. Everything's mostly good. We just got to find the bad apples. Whereas again, I think it's amoral. Like it is what it is, which means you have to be way more aggressive. And I almost like a three-part plan where number one, hire people that will be aware of and know about these things. And obviously that's a big part of the discussion around diversity is something, but I think it's also hiring people that are experts in like the victimization of children. For example, there are people who that's what they do. That's what they say is they know, and they know where people are like, I mean, it sounds like an awful job to be perfectly frank, but the potential for awfulness is here and it needs to be dealt with directly. It's not like, Oh, there's some bad apples here. It's no, there's humanity is here. That's the thing with humanity is there. And all the problems of humanity are going to be 
on these platforms. That's just the way it is. All the good is going to be on these platforms too. And obviously we want to preserve that, but you have to start with an honest evaluation of the human condition and the human condition is going to manifest on these platforms. So start there. Don't wait for it to bubble up. Actually look for it. When you look for it, if it's against the law or it's clearly against the guidelines, take it down. And again, don't just wait for it to bubble up. Actively look for it. And then two, if it's very much on the edge and not something that is problematic, then put up a fence around it. Like just cut it off. Don't put a Wikipedia article. Put up a wall. Is that going to hurt engagement? Yes. Is that going to make people mad? Yes. Are there huge things to think about? Is who makes the rules? Who makes the determinations? Absolutely. But you don't have to be the only veto side on the internet. And if you, of course, we just describe where they want to be. But if you don't, there's only sort of blunt hammers in society's hands to handle this. And those would be even worse. Yeah, I 100% agree with you. But the broader context I would just back out into is like, this is an opportunity for you guys to live up to like, we're here making the world a better place. And implicit in that is with a mission and with language like that and attracting people to work like that and describing yourself to users and to the press and to investors like that, there is an implicit agreement that sometimes you are going to make things that involve business trade-offs to do the right thing. And here is an opportunity to do that because buried beneath that objective function of engagement is basically a dollar argument. It's a dominance argument and a dollar argument. And if you really believe in your mission, then giving up some of that dominance, giving up some of those dollars in order to be true to this, we are making the world a better place, I think is really important. And I also think this is part of the reason why we're getting this backlash in tech, because on one hand, there's this narrative around how fantastic we are and how we're making the world a better place. And on the other hand, when it's clear that these amoral tools are being used in these destructive ways, these companies aren't acting with enough conviction around stopping it. Yeah, I mean, <laughs> we've already gone very long. I feel like we could go like a million times longer on this point. We just came up early in the podcast. And to me, I think it's still the key point. It's this mismatch of there is something to this, this conviction that we are what we are doing is inherently good with the reality that what we are doing is not good or bad. It's what happens after it that sort of decides that case. Is Facebook good or bad? Well, does Zuckerberg even have the capability of countenancing the possibility that Facebook is a bad thing for the world? Like, if you can't even get to there, can you even have these discussions? And I think that, yes, Zuckerberg is the most prominent example, but you live and work in tech. I, you know, we see that with these companies. We see what they say. Like, are people even capable of imagining the possibility that what they do is wrong? And I say this to someone myself. It's been mentioned this before, the internet has been so good to me, it's hard to imagine that it could be a bad thing, right? Would I rather be in a world where there was the internet and the reality is I'd probably be still stuck in Wisconsin, miserable and unhappy? I don't know. It's certainly tempting and easy for me to assume that it is for the best because my intentions are good and it's worked out well for me. You know, again, there but for the grace of God go I. I mean, there's this is certainly very damning on YouTube's leadership, but I don't know if we'd do better. Yeah. Anyhow, we went very, very long. We'll, we'll see. We'll see what happens after this. But yeah, we had to make up for last week. Yeah, we did. And I also feel like if I was a, a little bit incoherent or less articulate than normal, I did battle through like a rather nasty headache tonight. So uh, I'll ask for your grin. Oh, th- there you go. We did fight through. Thank you. I'm happy about your headache because it let us get back on the wagon as it were. I mean, I think the ideas were right, but there were moments over the past hour and a bit where I was like, why aren't the words coming out properly? No, no, you powered through. You do retain the crown. Congratulations to you. Thank you. But it's good to get back on the horse. (laughs) 
<laughs> Sounds good. I will talk to you next week. Sounds good, mate. Have a good one. Oh, uh, yeah. Bye-bye.